morning, everyone. Um, I want to start at the risk of um, starting on a somber note. Um, I want to start by um, sharing our wishes for healing for all those who need it, for comfort for all those who need it, um, and with our prayers for the health and safety of all of you and all of your loved ones. Um, this is a very intense and complex and difficult time, and we're grateful to have the chance to spend it, or to spend at least some of it, with all of you. As a way of getting us started, um, I wanted to share really what I would describe as a string of thoughts um, that I hope can give some sustenance, some provocation, some nurture to people, maybe even can provide some Seder discussion topics. Um, I'm not expecting that everyone will grab on to all five of the thoughts I'm gonna share. I'm really just kind of trying to open up some windows for people. Um, that seemed to me to be a good way to enter into this very unusual um, time leading into Pesach. So the first thing I wanna say a few words about is vulnerability. It goes without saying, I think, that we find ourselves all of us, I think, feeling vulnerable in extraordinarily intense, unusually intense and powerful ways. And what I wanted to share as a way into thinking about our vulnerability is something that I think is quite surprising to a lot of modern readers or modern people in general. And that is that in many ways, the Torah really wants us to not only accept, but embrace our vulnerability and our dependence. Perhaps the most powerful um, example of that, the very kind of striking example of that is in the book of Dvarim, in the book of Deuteronomy, God sings the praises of the land of Israel by saying that Israel is better than Egypt because the land of Egypt is so full of water, the Nile, that it essentially irrigates itself. But Eretz Yisrael is different and better because it is radically dependent on God. Now, this may be a familiar text, but I think it's important to stop every once in a while and notice that if you were a farmer, you might hear this comparison and say, thank you very much, but I'll take Egypt because a place that irrigates itself, that is reliably irrigated, is a place that, hey, that's a safe place for me to be a farmer, to know that my crops will, will yield each year. But instead, the Torah is skeptical of the land of Egypt because it feels that in a place that is so reliably irrigated, people are likely to forget that they're vulnerable at all. If you always have everything you need, then you on some level forget that things are tenuous, that you are dependent, that self-sufficiency is an illusion. You forget all of that. And so the Torah emphasizes, you know, Eretz Yisrael is better because you can't forget that you're dependent on God in such a place. There is something I think quite amazing about that. And in fact, more generally, the great anxiety of the book of Deuteronomy is that blessings can easily turn into temptations. That is to say, right, Eretz Yisrael is God's great blessing to the Jewish people. And 
God worries from the very beginning of the book that the people will receive the land, take the land, it's probably a better way of put it, putting it, and forget that we didn't build it all ourselves. We don't ultimately control it. Hence, by the way, the preoccupation of the book of Leviticus with reminding us that we are always gerim. We are always vulnerable outsiders, guests in a place that is owned ultimately by God and not by us. I'm emphasizing all this because I think that for the Torah, to remember that we're vulnerable is to open up the possibility of remembering how much we owe to God and how much we owe to each other, how dependent we are on God and how dependent we are ultimately on each other. The fear is in the Torah that to deny one's vulnerability is to open the door to a kind of self-assertion that ignores the reality of everything but my own ego. That's why Paro is described in the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Yechezkel, as saying, Ani asitini, which either means I made denial, or perhaps even more, almost insanely, I made myself. Right? Paro is not a coincidence from the Torah's moral perspective that Paro, the guy who denies any dependence on anyone, the, the ultimate self-creator, if you will, is also the ultimate oppressor, forgets obligation. I would also say here that from the perspective of, of moral and political philosophy, this would obviously be its own lecture, but I'm going to say it in a very brief way. You know, much, a, a great deal of modern political theory begins with the idea of autonomous adults and asks the question, what would autonomous adults agree to? right, if they didn't know their own situation. But what if we had a moral philosophy and a political theory that began with the way we all begin, as babies, utterly dependent on others for our most basic needs? And what if we were able to maintain a view of the human being that for all that we're able to be strong and dignified and accomplished, we always remain on some level vulnerable and in need? Now, the reason this seems to me to be so important and, but complex is that vulnerability is a double-edged sword. It is possible to acknowledge that one is vulnerable and respond to that by drawing an extremely tight circle around ourselves and the people we most dearly love and essentially say, in this moment when I'm vulnerable, forget about everyone else, they don't matter. And the Torah's challenge, I think, is to build a kind of society where our awareness of our vulnerability opens us, opens us to drawing our circle wider and wider. Just as I'm vulnerable, you're vulnerable. And my vulnerability awakens me and sensitizes me to your vulnerability. And that's where the possibility of a good and compassionate society emerges into the world. And I, and I guess what I, what I want to say here, without anything as offensive or Pollyannish as saying that there's a blessing in, in COVID-19, I would never say anything remotely as crude and, as that. But I think one thing that we might think about is what does this extremely powerful reminder, devastating reminder, if you will, of our vulnerability make possible in terms of what kind of society we want to be and what kind of society we're willing to work to become as God willing down the road, we emerge from this.
So that's vulnerability. And related to that, secondly, I want to share a thought about care. Many of you have heard me teach many times about how Judaism's highest ideal, what the Rambam calls tachlit ma'alata adam, the highest level a human being can achieve in this lifetime, is about compassionate presence with people who are vulnerable. Clothing the naked, visiting the sick, comforting the mourners, burying the dead, etc. I want to ask what it would mean for us as a Jewish community as we reemerge, when we reemerge, to be a community that truly values care above all else. Do our kids in our schools know that whether you are kind is in fact far more important than whether you are academically or financially successful? And I want to share an observation here that the feminist philosopher Nell Noddings mentions that I think is enormously moving. I have to say, it's been kind of on my mind constantly lately. Nell Noddings observes that feminism achieved one thing, but has failed completely to achieve its converse. I'm not sure converse is the right word, but you'll see in a second. What feminism has succeeded in doing is convincing almost everyone that women should be allowed to do all of the roles, all of the work that has traditionally been assigned to men. So women can be CEOs and corporate attorneys and you know investment bankers and God knows what not, maybe even president of the United States. But what feminism has completely failed to achieve, she notes, or maybe I should say differently, what our society has completely failed to take seriously is that the roles traditionally assigned to women are so valuable that men should be seen as highly successful if they take those roles. What about a society in which men proudly say, I want to be a social worker. I want to teach kindergarten. I want to um, be a nurse at a, an assisted living facility. And we will not be a society that truly values care unless and until there is tremendous kind of emotional and social prestige attached to the roles of care. This is a moment, if we ever we have one, to remember that. Because I think we all on some level know that if there are any heroes in this moment, they're not just doctors, although they surely are doctors, but they are nurses and they are physician's assistants and they are all the people who are engaged in any way um, in being on the front lines of medical care. And I wonder whether we might learn about what kind of society we wanna have from taking that seriously. Third, and again, also related. I want to share with you two of my favorite verses in the Chumash. This is Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10 is, describes God in this extraordinarily moving vision. And it culminates in the following statement. God champions the cause of the orphan and the widow. And God loves the outsider, the stranger, and manifests that love by giving the stranger food and clothing. And then the next verse, verse 19, you must love the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Now, for years, I thought and taught something that I think is still true, that what Deuteronomy 10 is doing there is suggesting something very subtle but very powerful by juxtaposing the claim that God loves the stranger with the obligation for us to love the stranger. It is elevating 
the mitzvah to love the stranger, it is elevating the mitzvah of loving the stranger to a form of imitatio dei, to v'halachta bidrachav, to walking in God's ways. In other words, right, just as God, you know, we say just as God visits the sick, so should you, that what Devarim is itself saying is, just as God loves the stranger, so must you. No greater way to elevate a mitzvah than that in biblical thinking. But a Bible scholar named Daniel Carroll points something out about these verses that I think is really interesting. And if it's not the pshat, if it's not the plain sense, it is surely very powerful as a, as a drash on these verses. And it may very well be part of the pshat. He says that the relationship between verses 18 and 19 is a little bit different. That verse 18 tells us that God loves the stranger by giving the stranger, manifests that love by giving the stranger food and clothing. And the reader is inclined to stop and ask, huh, that's interesting. How does God do that? By what means does God provide meals to the stranger? Therefore, he says, verse 19 comes along and says, you must love the stranger. That is to say, your love of the stranger is God's means of providing the stranger with food and clothing. You are God's hands. You are the vehicle that delivers God's love to those who are most vulnerable and downtrodden. And that feels to me like an enormously powerful message for us to take with us. And I will just say that I have rarely in my life felt so keenly um, the idea of groups of people being God's hands the way I have when I listen to friends um, and colleagues and people who I follow on social media, honestly, talk about what it's like to be a doctor or a nurse, um, for that matter, an epidemiologist in this time. A, a friend of mine said to me a couple nights ago something that took my breath away because it's not what I have heard from a lot of other people. He said that he's a professor at a medical school um, and uh, affiliated with a hospital. And he said, you know, many of the doctors feel, he says, incredible sense of fear and anxiety, not least because they don't have the medical equipment they need and they're worried about bringing illness home. And then he stopped and he said, but I want you to know morale is very high. And I said, really, you know, what do you mean? I, everything you've just said suggests that morale is low. And he said, no, no, no. Everyone is scared. Everyone is anxious. And everyone knows that this is why we chose to do what we do. This right here. This moment is our moment. Um, and I was just honestly blown away by the sheer power of that, by the holiness of that moment, by consciously or not, the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 10, 18, and 19 on Carol's reading, that is, people being vessels and vehicles um, of delivering God's love. Fourth, this text is a text I'll be teaching more in depth um, tomorrow afternoon in my Psalms class um, online. But I want to mention something very interesting. Psalm 4243. Psalm 4243 is one psalm. Why it is broken up into two chapters is a different discussion. And Psalm 4243 is amazing for this moment because it appears to be a psalm prayed by someone who is brokenhearted because it's time for the pilgrimage festival and he's unable to go. And there is a lot to say about this. But I want to just note one thing. What makes this psalm so exquisite is that it refuses to choose hope or despair. It insists 
on embracing hope and despair at the very same time. And in so doing, I think it embraces rather than simplifies the sheer complexity of what it means to be alive at a moment like this. It is so easy to have religion become about trying to convince us that our emotions should be simplified, should be, you know, pious in simplistic ways. And this psalm is an amazing example, really in the, in the spirit of the psalms as a whole, but it's an amazing example of holding at the same time a sense of hope that things can and will one day be different and a sense that the present moment is devastating and intolerable. It's not one or the other, it's one and the other. And if you choose to look at this psalm later, I will just mention, notice how it takes three times for the psalmist to say to himself, Why are you so downcast, my being? Why are you so disquieted? Have, have hope in God. Because I will one day yet praise God for God's salvation. And in a certain conventional reading of piety, what should come up, what, 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 what should happen after that is a sense of, okay, I'm okay now. And the very next verse is, oh my God, I'm such a mess, right? He has moments of hope and also an acknowledgement that a moment of hope doesn't chase away all of the fear and anxiety. And I think there's something enormously important in a moment like this for all of us, for those of us who are blessed with being parents, um, to help people, for those of us who are rabbis or chaplains, to find ways to help people not feel that they have to choose among their feelings, but to live with and embrace the complexity of everything that they are going through and that they feel. Um, and then really one final point that I want to be careful not to sound naive about. And that is this. It may feel in this moment like, oh my God, this is never, ever going to end. We're going to be in this space for a very long time. And if you follow, you know, if you follow various epidemiologists on Twitter, you could be forgiven for thinking, okay, could be two months, could be 18 months, could be, you know, like you just have no way of knowing. And that in itself is incredibly anxiety inducing for a lot of us. I think that one of the ways that the Hasidic tradition understood the Exodus is that on some level, Yitziat Mitzrayim, the Exodus from Egypt, is a paradigm. And it is a paradigm for the faith that no status quo is forever. In Hasidut, in Hasidism, that tends to be psychologized, as the Hasidim tend to do, it tends to be about my own inner Egypt. But I think there's something very profound there about what it means to have a faith that the status quo, the situation that we find ourselves in, it may take a long time, it took hundreds of years in Egypt, but it will eventually be um, otherwise, it will be overturned. This idea makes me very nervous because I think it can be taught in ways that are very naive and even destructive for people who are faced with situations that can't be changed. When I had this idea, when I, when I first thought about this idea, I thought it was totally revolutionary and amazing. And then I found myself spending years and years living with a chronic illness that is likely to never go away. And I realized that there is a certain naivete in saying, 
oh, there's no status quo that can't be overturned. You have to find more nuanced ways of talking about that. But I think nevertheless, the faith that many things that seem permanent do not need to be permanent, will not be permanent, is a really important reminder of the possibility of hope and hope in transformation. You know, if you were an Egyptian in Egypt, you might have woken up and thought, my grandfather was a slave, my father was a slave, I'm a slave. If anything is certain, it is that my children will be slaves and so too will their children. And then the world turns upside down. And I guess my hope and my bracha that I want to end this opening with is first on the most direct level that we look forward to and dream um, of a time when this is over. And also that we take this opportunity to return to where I started to dream of a way we might return to a different kind of society when we reemerge, where vulnerability teaches us compassion, where care is valued above all else, and where we remember that it is in our hands to deliver God's love to those who are vulnerable and in need. So I wish you all a Chag Sameach and um, perhaps even more profoundly in this moment, a safe and healthy holiday. And to end where I began with wishes for healing for those who need it, comfort to those who need it, and health and safety for us all. Thank you so much.